0: Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast, episode 72, for July Twenty 2020. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Since 1979, the Islamic Republic of Iran has distinguished itself as perhaps the foremost practitioner of gray zone activities. And for nearly four decades, the United States has struggled to respond effectively to this asymmetric way of war. Institute military analyst Michael Eisenstadt argues that a better American understanding of gray zone strategy... And Washington's adoption of some of its methods could reduce the risk of military conflict, even while improving deterrence against Tehran.
1: You often saw in the media at the time this kind of meme about American Iran being at the brink of war on several times in the past year. Okay. I I don't buy that simply because, first of all, the whole reason for Iran's modus operandi, the way this whole gray zone, you know, kind of uh, strategy is to avoid war. I just don't see that the two sides are, were on the brink of war. And in fact, I think that whole mental model is derived from America's conventional warfare template where you have peace and you have war, and there is this kind of well-defined threshold between peace and war. In a gray zone conflict, it's all kind of a, a murky affair. There's only a con- continuum, and you have just escalation and de-escalation, and it's very unlikely that it leads to a war unless one of the sides decides they want to go to
0: war. We'll talk with Mike about the military gray zone, how Iran has exploited it so effectively, and how the United States can use these methods to boost deterrence and reduce the chances of dangerous escalation. After this.
1: This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a
0: balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them.
1: Find all of our research and analysis at Washington Institute.org or follow us on Twitter at WASH Institute.
0: I'm speaking today with Michael Eisenstadt, the Khan Fellow and Director of the Military and Security Studies Program at the Washington Institute. A 26 year veteran of the U.S. Army Reserve with deployments to Iraq, Turkey, Israel, Jordan, and the West Bank, he's a specialist in Persian Gulf and Arab Israeli security affairs, as well as irregular warfare. Mike is the author of the 2020 study, Operating in the Gray Zone countering Iran's asymmetric way of war. Mike, welcome to Middle East PolicyCast.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: So you recently published a monograph on Iran's gray zone strategy, as you term it. Is is the gray zone a new strategic concept?
1: What's it all about? It's a relatively new term of art, but it refers to a kind of a modus operandi, which has been around for quite a while to the degree that gray zone actors often rely on proxies. Well, proxy warfare has been around as long as there's been war. Um, during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union fought a variety of proxy wars around the world. So it relies on elements that have been around forever, but kind of the, the combination of proxy warfare, cyber warfare, um, um, covert and unattributed action is kind of unique in the way that it's been done recently. So. Gray zone activities are often done by anti-status co-actors who want to advance their interests while understanding that that will bring them into conflict with the United States. So they act in ways that enables them to, act, to advance their interests with, while managing risk, um, avoiding escalation, and acting in a way so that they don't end up at war with the United States. So very often, they will test and probe to see what they can get away with. They will rely on proxies or covert action or unattributed action to create ambiguity about who's behind the action. Was it um, authorized at the highest level of the Iranian government or was it the actions of a lower level commander? And this creates uncertainty in the minds of American decision makers about how to respond. Now, it also relies on kind of universal aspects of human psychology. My brother, my kid brother, when I was growing up, was really the master of the gray zone. So I'd be sitting at my desk in my room doing my homework, and he'd come to the entrance of my room, and he'd start whistling. I know you can't concentrate on your homework. So I'd be trying to ignore him. And then he would start taking rolled up little rolled up pieces of paper and start throwing it, and I'd see these pieces of paper skipping across my desk, and I'd still try to ignore him. And then he would take a step into the room and then a step back, two steps in, two steps back, and then three steps. And then finally, I would jump up from my desk and start chasing them, chasing him. And he would scream, Mom, Dad, Mike's chasing me. And he would run to his room. The door would be just slightly ajar. He'd slip in through the door and lock it. So he really kind of had mastered the repertoire of Grey's Own Actors, which is to test and probe to see what he could get away with. When the other guy responds to act the victim and then try to kind of get great power intervention on your behalf and then take refuge behind your anti-access area denial array. Now, the difference between kids play in the real world is that gray zone actors in the real world don't want to prompt a violent response. They want to just get up to the threshold and see what they can get away with without causing the other side to react. And um, they still play the victim, but a lot of these gray zone actors are strategically lonely. So they don't have, like Iran does not have a great power patron that they can try to mobilize to intervene on its behalf. Countries like China and Russia are great powers that don't have allies. They don't have alliance networks. So they don't have the ability to kind of draw on partners or, or get even a greater power to intervene. But otherwise, the gray zone repertoire is, has been used by little brothers you know, forever.
0: I sympathize as an older brother. Um in in the 21st century we've heard a lot about hybrid and asymmetric warfare and and it's uh, both of those have, have been battlefield challenges for the United States. How do these strategic ideals differ from gray zone
1: operations? Yeah, um they're sometimes used interchangeably although they are very different things. Although there is sometimes an overlap between the two um, and I'll explain. So gray zone actions or activities are a modus operandi to advance interests while avoiding war. Asymmetry or asymmetric actions involve exploiting differences in either the way adversaries think or in capabilities in order to achieve advantage and disproportionate effects. So, like, basically, everybody is an asymmetric actor because everybody uses their advantage ag- advantages against adversary weaknesses, uh, for instance, and they try to get the biggest bang for their buck, which is really kind of the the, the essence of asymmetry. Um, and then hybridity, well, also everybody's hybrid actors because hybridity involves the use of both conventional and unconventional um, forces, although together in order to achieve synergistic effects, okay? Now, so everybody has hybrid forces that, you know, in in most armies you have conventional forces as well as special forces, Um, but very often they don't operate together. And likewise, many countries do not use all their instruments of national power, that is the military instrument, political instrument, um, you know, the economic levers, including fostering corruption in other countries, using criminal networks to achieve synergies. Now, of course, in the United States, we are prevented by law from you know, engaging in criminal activity. But a lot of hybrid actors have no constraints such as that. So countries like Iran use their conventional military and their unconventional forces, the, the Revolutionary Guard Corps together on the battlefield. And even the Revolutionary Guard Corps has both conventional forces as well as the Cooks Force, which is their irregular warfare specialists. And then you have the besiege as well. They have cyber capabilities. And then they also engage in a lot of criminal activities um, involving, um, you know, kind of a subversion of foreign governments through corruption, through um, criminal activities. And they use proxies all together to create, create synergies. So that's kind of um, something which, again, is not necessarily so new, but Iran is really uh, you know, pretty good when it comes to both playing the gray zone. This is something that they've been doing for 40 years, and we haven't really been able to develop an adequate response to. The gray zone, their approach to the gray zone is founded on certain asymmetries. Okay. The most important one is a conceptual asymmetry. They see warfare or, or competition um, as a continuum. Okay. So you have um, both nonviolent and violent types of competition. It's all a continuum, and as a result, you have kind of peaks of escalation and then troughs of de-escalation. But it's a continuum, and you try to avoid war at all costs. Americans have this binary approach to thinking about competition and war. You have peace and war, and you're either at peace or you're at war. So if you're at peace and you have a gray zone actor acting in that gray zone between war and peace, which makes it difficult for you to respond for legal or political reasons, they have an inherent advantage. They can operate using proxies, using covert action, using cyber activities. And because of our politics or our legal system, we cannot respond. So they also have operational asymmetries that they take advantage of. For instance, Iran has its own proxies that they're able to use. The United States does not have proxies, or or there's been very few You know, we don't have on an ongoing basis proxy actors to act on our behalf. So that gives Iran an advantage because they can act through proxies. And then we're always guessing, well, is this an Iranian commissioned activity? Do we respond by, you know, directing a, a response at the proxy or at Iran? There's also motivational asymmetries that they're able to take advantage of. They are, the threat that they perceive coming from the United States is, from their point of view, a potentially existential threat. It's on their doorstep geographically, and therefore 24 seven, they are focused on that threat. The United States, on the other hand, is a global actor. We do not have vital interests engaged with Iran, although we have important interests engaged. So there are kind of this asymmetry in, in terms of the, um, the, you know, the, the interests that are at stake for both actors. And we have global interests, which force us to devote, you know kind of divide Iraq, our focus between Iran one day And then things going on in Korea and Venezuela with the Russians, with the Chinese. So Iran is often able to take advantage of that. And then finally, the final asymmetry that they exploit um, is this temporal asymmetry. Americans are all about quick results. We've got overnight delivery and fast food um, and service while you wait. Whereas Iran and 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 our political system operates on a four-year election cycle, and basically each administration has only about two and a half years to accomplish their goals in the foreign policy arena be, you know before they are focused on either a re-election or or the, the next election campaign and their attention is elsewhere whereas Iran most of the decision makers are unelected and as a result they don't have to worry about public opinion and they've had their positions for decades so for instance the supreme leader has been in his job since 1989 and the late Qasem Soleimani the head the former head of IRANS Quds force was in his job since about 1998 1999 so they could afford to play the long game and 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 play you know this patient game whereas again we're in a rush to get these done um and as a result they have a certain advantage very often as you know as a result of that different time horizon
0: when it comes to asymmetry would it be fair to say that for the united states uh, some technological uh, things such as our mastery of night vision in the battlefield, GPS, even the possession of nuclear weapons are potentially asymmetric options that we bring to a, uh, a combat space.
1: Yeah. One of our principal asymmetric advantages is our ability to bring massive precision, uh, massive force to bear and precision fires to bear against an enemy. Okay. So we have carrier strike groups, we have, um, you know, very large numbers of long range strike aircraft and bombers, okay? Um, Now, Iran has a very, they don't have a large air force, but they have a very large missile force and its precision capabilities are growing. We've seen it demonstrated recently. So they aren't, although there is this tremendous disparity in military capabilities, because we can bring our forces around the world to deal with Iran in the way that they cannot reciprocate, they are narrowing the gap in certain niche areas which, um, because we do not want to go to war with Iran, you know, gives them disproportionate um, leverage vis-a-vis the United States. And likewise, because of the damage that they could do to the petrochemical infrastructure in the Gulf, which the world economy relies on, this is a source of countervailing pressure on their part against us. So as a result, we can't really bring many of our asymmetric advantages to bear against Iran because of their ability to cause great harm in the physical domain. And likewise, in the cyber domain, in many ways, we live in a cyber glass house because our entire society runs on a information technology backbone, which is not very well protected. It was not designed with the idea that it could be targeted in the future by foreign cyber actors. This wasn't even conceived of when our our cyber kind of backbone was created decades ago. And as a result, they have the ability to target American critical infrastructure and cause potentially great harm. Um, Now, of course, we could do the same, but again, the Iranian people are under sanctions and and are kind of, in a way, inured the kind of hardship in a way that the American people is not. So therefore, an Iranian cyber strike would have a disproportionate impact on America um, in a way, that would be very different than an American cyber strike or even a physical strike on Iran's critical infrastructure.
0: So getting kind of back to the main con- the, the main uh, flow of, of the conversation, Qasem Soleimani could play the long game until the day that he couldn't. So for Iran specifically, how does Tehran's approach to the gray zone work? What, are, what exactly is Iran putting into operation in terms of its uh, gray zone strategy?
1: Well- the best way to understand Iran's great zone strategy is to look at what they've done since last May when they launched their counter pressure campaign against America's maximum pressure policy against Iran. Right? So we saw at first, um, well, what we, what, we also, what we also saw was kind of a gradual escalation from simple to complex and from non-lethal to lethal at- attacks during this period. So at the beginning, they conducted limpet mine attacks against tankers from third countries that were parked off the coast of the United Arab Emirates. And then a month later, and these these ships were at anchor. Um, it was probably done by Iranian combat swimmers. So this is kind of a, um, not a, a very difficult uh, type of operation done at night. Um, the ships were not moving. Then a month later, they conducted attacks or limpet mine attacks. Against two tankers that were moving through the Strait of Hormuz, so again, more audacious act, more complicated act, because the ships were already underway. Um, It was probably done by small boats that kind of went up to the sides of the tankers and 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 crew members uh, affixed um, the limpet mines with uh, magnets, Um, and then Iran started diverting tankers from third countries in the Gulf, and then they launched in September a combined. Drone cruise missile strike on Saudi petrochemical infrastructure on land. And it was a direct attack, okay, against, you know, against this infrastructure launched out of Iran. So what they did, they tested, you know, America's response initially by conducting, you know, first the attack at the ships at anchor, then ships moving underway, then an attack against Saudi infrastructure directly on land. And then they shifted to Iraq in the fall, and they started conducting small rocket strikes, which gathered in size, as well as the size of the rockets that were used until they finally in December killed an American. So again, you see the same modus operandi, testing and probing, gradually ramping up operations to see what they could get away with. Um, you know, Operations that they did not claim credit for that were unattributed in order to create pressure against the United States. Or counter pressure against the United States. In fact, though, however, it did not achieve the desired results because I think what they were trying to accomplish, mainly, was to cause the U.S. to ease up on sanctions, which we have not. We've only continued to double down on sanctions. Although we did create greater or or enlarge fissures between the United States and many of its allies, because many of the targets that were hit, they, they were not attacking American targets. They were attacking targets that belong to American allies. And so from the point of view of many of these allies, America had taken actions by trying to halt Iran's oil exports through sanctions that put these allies in Iran's crosshairs. But when it came, you know, when they were targeted, America did not come to their assistance. So although we did eventually reinforce our military presence in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf region, we did not respond militarily to any of these attacks, so it did succeed in, you know, driving a wedge deeper into, um, you know, the the relationship between the United States and its allies in the Gulf, as well as some of its European allies, who were not happy with our, you know, maximum pressure policy, anyhow.
0: The from from Iran's point of view, it, it it does sound a lot like the metaphor of the the kid brother, uh, you know, stepping into the room or or you know, poking across the back seat of the car, uh, gentle at first, a little harder, a little harder, a little harder, see what they can get away with, um, escalating slowly um, and doing so deniably and in ways that aren't quite leading up to the threshold of you know open combat. What did the United States do?
1: Well, for about seven months, we did nothing and, um, or practically nothing. There were reports that we did cyber attacks in response to the shoot down of an American strategic, strategic drone last summer. Um, but in a way, acting in the cyber domain telegraphed our reluctance to act in the physical domain. Okay. So in a way, I think that may have emboldened Iran until finally that American was killed in December. Then we responded by hitting an Iranian proxy, this Iraqi group, Qatar Hezbollah. We hit some of their facilities in Iraq and Syria, killing about 25 and wounding about 50 of their people. As a result, then Iran's proxies organized a violent demonstration in front of the American embassy in Baghdad. Now this was a major miscalculation because first of all, you have all kinds of horrible American memories of the takeover of the American embassy uh, in Iran in uh, 1980, okay, and the hostage crisis, um, which was, you know, really kind of lays at the, you know, this, this trauma, which kind of is the very basis of the, you know, the, or was the start of the um, you know, very bad relationship that we have today between Iran and the United States. But it also um, kind of aroused memories of the, you know, trauma, more recent trauma at the embassy in in, in Libya, in Benghazi in 2012, when the American ambassador there was was killed um, by a a terrorist group. Um, So the United States, you know, in response to the violent demonstrations in front of the U.S. embassy, then launched an attack to kill both Qasem Soleimani, who was maybe the second most important guy in the regime in Tehran, as well as Abu Mahdi al muhandis who was the head of Qatar Hezbollah, the, the effective head of the the Sha'abi, the popular mobilization units, and really the most important Iranian proxy in Iraq. Okay, That was a big, that was, first of all, that was a big surprise for Iran, because he had never responded militarily to proxy attacks on the United States in the past. So this was a surprise. And this was a miscalculation on their part. Um, And they responded, of course, with a missile attack on an Iraqi base where there were American personnel. Um, Several-score American personnel received traumatic brain injuries, but no Americans were killed. And then you had this kind of gradual de-escalation. There were rocket launches by Iranian proxies against the American embassy, but no casualties. In in the remainder of January, it kind of settled down in February. March, there was a bit of a spike. Um, Two more Americans and a British service member were killed in March. We responded with again strikes on Qatar Hezbollah, and then it kind of settled down. And then we saw more recently in April, May, Iran started resuming activities in the Gulf with harassment of US naval warships, which hadn't happened for about three years, um, and uh, attempts to divert. Foreign tankers, which is something they hadn't done from the pre- since the previous summer. So we see they're they're very flexible. They're an adaptive learning adversary. They experiment to see what works. The escalation is not linear. It goes up and then it goes down. So there are peaks and there are troughs. And this gets me to another point, which you often saw in the media at the time this kind of meme about American Iran being at the brink of war on several times in the past year. I, I don't buy that simply because, first of all, the whole reason for Iran's modus operandi, of the way this whole gray zone, you know, kind of uh, strategy is to avoid war. So this is something that they want to avoid at all costs. We look back, for instance, when they shot down the American drone. First of all, they targeted an unmanned aircraft. They could have targeted an, an American manned aircraft. There were several in the area. Um, there, There were probably many opportunities that they had. They could have done that, but they shot down an American unmanned aircraft, and America responded with a cyber attack, okay, according to media reports. So that indicated to me that both sides wanted to limit the conflict. And likewise, when they responded to the killing of Qasem Soleimani, they informed the Iraqi government several hours before that they were going to launch an attack, so that the Iraqi government could tell the Americans that an attack was coming and that the Americans could take shelter so that there would not be any casualties. Of course, there could have been accidentally casualties. So Iran is not completely um, unwilling to take any risk, but by and large, they acted in a way to minimize the risk to the U.S. by giving advanced warning. So again, I just don't see that the two sides are were on the brink of war. And in fact, I think that whole mental model is derived from the You know, America's kind of conventional warfare template where you have peace and you have war, and there is this kind of well-defined threshold between peace and war. In a gray zone conflict, it's all kind of a, a murky affair. Um, There's only a con- continuum, and you have just escalation and de-escalation, and it's very unlikely that it leads to a war unless one of the sides decides they want to go to war. Which is always a possibility. But again, I see no, until now, I see no indication that either side wants to go to war. Although, again, that could change in the future.
0: So, by operating in the gray zone, you're saying that Iran is actually giving itself and therefore us in the relationship a, a, a degree, a, a basically, a set of tools to avoid escalation into open conventional conflict, whereas we are operating without that set of tools. So, what would it look like for the united states to have a gray zone strategic tool set
1: well we we have a lot of the tools that would be necessary to operate in the gray zone and, and in a way i mean we have conducted in the past um, un, unattributed activities against Iran I mean for instance some of the cyber stuff that we've done in the past you know stuxnet um, and the more recent cyber attacks are elements of the gray zone toolkit but the main difference is that for instance when we when we targeted Hassan Soleimani and killed him. We announced it publicly. We took credit for it. And in the gray zone, very often you don't do that. Um, there are times, you know, even when operating in the gray zone, there are times when your interests require you to come out of the gray zone and to operate overtly and to take credit even for those actions. But by and large, you know, in the gray zone, you don't take credit for activities. You um, you, you know you operate covertly or through proxies. So we can, we can use special forces to conduct operations against Iranian oil installations against their Navy without taking credit to make it look like accidents because accidents do happen during training. Okay. Um, you know, we saw recently that the Iranians by accident, um, apparently, um, you know, launched a missile that hit one of their own ships. Although there was an Israeli journalist raised the possibility that this was an act of cyber warfare that a cyber operation redirected the missile. I don't know. I don't have. I don't have the. I don't have any particular insight on that. But that's the kind of stuff you can do without taking credit for it. More discreet messaging. I mean, there's been a tendency, I think, to to beat our chest, uh, to take credit for the, some of the stuff we've done, and we don't have to do that. So I'll give you an example. Okay, twice in the last year, oil pipelines off of Syria have been sabotaged. By who? I have no idea. But the fact is, nobody took credit for it. Syria didn't announce it, although their news media did cover it. Um, And there was no crisis as a result of it because, you know, it could have been, who knows, it could have been the U.S., it could have been Israel, it could have been the Turks, it could have been any any number of possible actors. So when you operate in the gray zone and you don't take credit for operations, you operate at a at a a low level of violence, very focused attacks. In fact, very often these gray zone attacks are non-lethal. So I'll give you an example of something we could learn from. For the first seven months, all of Iran's gray zone attacks were non-lethal attacks until they killed the American um, in in December. Um, so when they put holes in the Iraqi in, in the tankers off of the coast of uh, the UAE and the and the tankers that were transiting the Strait of uh, Hormuz, they put the lipid mines in parts of the hole where there were not likely to be crew members. Okay. And they did it in a way so that there probably would not be large amounts of oil spillage and the like. Likewise, when they target the oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, these are big, sprawling facilities. If you want to kill people in the operations center, you could do that. But if you don't want to kill people, there's lots of infrastructure where there's very few people, you know, in the course of a day. So, and you could do it that way. And and they achieve tremendous psychological effects without even killing anybody. So a lot of the gray zone activities, we have to, you know, the American National Defense Strategy talks all the time about greater lethality. But in operating in the gray zone, sometimes you don't want to be lethal. Sometimes you want to be less than lethal. Um, And actually, you could achieve great effects by non-lethal attacks. So that's something, you know, so when you develop your gray zone toolkit, it's not just by developing lethal means, which is still important for us because, again, our escalation dominance is one of the asymmetric advantages we have over Iran. And we we want to keep that in, in play. And we want to, have them in mind that we can potentially escalate vert- vertically if need be, but you also want to indicate to them that we have many non-lethal options that can impose costs on them, financial costs, um, without um, resulting in loss of life. Loss of life that could result in vertical escalation on their part.
0: If precision, as you're describing in, in, for example, some of the Iranian attacks is a core part of of gray zone operations, it seems like that might play well to uh, one of the asymmetric strengths of US forces, which is our our, uh, fairly well-honed ability to deliver whatever force we're trying to deliver with a very precise and well-controlled and coordinated accuracy.
1: Yeah. And if you're not worried about, um, you know, attribution, even if you don't take credit publicly, that's one way of doing it, although the Iranians will probably know that it's Americans who did it because they'll see um, their, their radar returns, they'll see that it was American aircraft, they'll be able to tell what direction they came from or maybe even which spaces they operated out if they came you know, from within the region. But there are other things you could do you know, um, using um, special forces, uh, operating covertly, Navy SEALs, CIA paramilitaries, that will enable that will enable us to um, create non-lethal effects or lethal effects, but keep them guessing as to who did it um, and how they did it. Uh, so you know. So and, and let me just say also, Iran is closing the precision gap with us, as they demonstrated by their mm-hmm. strike on Saudi oil facilities last September. So this is an area where our monopoly no, we no longer have a monopoly. And Iran is becoming um, increasingly capable in this area.
0: How does conventional warfare relate to gray zone operations? If, if, for example, the United States developed a more robust gray zone strategy, would that make conventional power and the operational competence of our conventional forces less important?
1: Well, look, conventional military capabilities are still important and they will remain important for the foreseeable future vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis China, Russia. And other actors, okay, but because of our domestic political situation, the hangover from the Iran Iraq, excuse me, from the uh, intervention in Iraq, the the intervention in in Afghanistan, public opinion does not support large military operations um, at this time. Um, so we have to look for other means of advancing our interests, bolstering deterrence um, that rely on uh, the use of a, you know, kind of a limited force um, in order to achieve our goals, and actually, this is one of the advantages of, of 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 operating in the gray zone. I think it's a more sustainable approach than our traditional approach, which is go big, go heavy, and achieve rapid uh, results. We don't really have the luxury of doing that anymore. So, first of all, let me just let, let's let's bring this down in, in, into the uh, discussion about Iranian policy. What is the whole goal of America's? maximum pressure policy against Iran is to get a a new deal with Iran with regard to their nuclear program, with regard to their regional activities, their missile missile program, and the like. So if you want to get a deal, going big might be disruptive of efforts to start diplomacy. But if you operate in the shadows below the radar screen with very limited force, even non-lethal force, that might be a way to limit the potential for escalation, to deter Iran while not scuttling the potential for diplomacy. Likewise, there's also the domestic mood. When we when we targeted Qasem Soleimani, you had then all of a sudden award powers debate once again in the United States, which is very risky because it raises the potential um, for convincing the Iranians that the president might be constrained by domestic opinion, and therefore they might have more freedom to act than they actually have. Um, So, I I would argue that acting in the gray zone is more consistent with the domestic mood because if you operate in an unattributed way without taking credit, you have less political polarization at home. Um, You have less accusations that the administration is getting us into another Middle East forever war. And likewise, I think it's also more consistent with the regional operational environment. When we killed Qasem Soleimani, then you also had a debate in Iraq about the American presence. And this created all kinds of Headaches for the United States because it, for a time it created the perception that the United States might have been you know on the on the verge of being booted out of Iraq. So who needs ha- who needs to create these kind of headaches? So by operating covertly under the radar screen, you don't royal, you know you know you don't create political problems in the region. And I would argue also that in the context of a long term you know kind of protracted conflict with Iran, which is likely to be one on points and not by not caplows. Efforts to achieve knockout blows are, you know, just very often, you know, they, they like I said, they're disruptive, and they're, they don't always provide the, um, you know, the, the, the benefits, you know, that, you know, you had hoped for or anticipated. I also just mentioned that, look, our national defense strategy is all about kind of rebalancing to the Indo-Pacific region, focusing more on the China and Russia ch- uh, threat North Korea threat and less on Iran, so a gray zone strategy that requires really very small forces to carry out, you know, kind of uh, you know small numbers of special forces, um, limited precision strike capabilities is also more consistent with the national defense strategy, which involves the shift of focus and forces to other parts of the world other than the Middle East. And then finally, I would argue that the, infu- the future is increasingly gray, okay? The future of warfare is increasingly gray. Countries, countries like China and Russia will continue to prepare for conventional warfare, but I think by and large, they'll prefer to operate in the gray zone because nobody wants major conventional war among nuclear powers because there's always the potential of escalation to the use of nuclear weapons. So to the degree that the future is increasingly gray, we need to be increasingly competent in this kind of warfare. We're already involved in this low level conflict with Iran. It's about time that we start becoming more competent and capable in developing our own gray zone repertoire in order to operate more effectively against Iran and in a way that is, I think, more politically sustainable over the long run. Because I think this kind of approach is an approach that both Democrats and Republicans can sign on to because it it seeks to avoid war, but it allows us to advance our interests in a way that perhaps contains Iran, that deters Iran, and perhaps lays the, you know, lays the groundwork for diplomacy with Iran, um, in a way that high profile, you know, going big militarily, you know, with 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 you know large amounts of forces would not.
0: Thanks for taking us on this uh, guided tour of the gray zone. I've been speaking today with Michael Eisenstadt, the Khan Fellow and Director of the Military and Security Studies Program at the Washington Institute, about his 2020 report, Operating in the Gray Zone, Countering Iran's Asymmetric Way of War, which you can find online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Mike, thanks for joining us
1: today. Thanks a lot, Scott. My, my pleasure.
0: This has been Middle East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at washingtoninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast.